Hello, and welcome to the Foothills Deeper Pod, a podcast for all of us looking to bring more love and more courage into our daily lives. I'm Reverend Elaine, one of your hosts, and I love the kind of podcast that we have for you today because it's one of those episodes that is perfect for you if you're new to Unitarian Universalism, because at the core of our message today is the question, what does it mean to be a Unitarian Universalist? And this is also such a rich and reorienting episode for those of us who've been part of this faith movement for years. Plus, Reverend Gretchen is such a great storyteller, and I noticed she kept posing questions in this sermon that I have asked myself so many times. So to introduce her message today, I thought I'd point out an interesting phenomenon among those who find Unitarian Universalism as teens or as adults, and it's this exclamation, wow, I've been a Unitarian Universalist all along and I just didn't know it. And I think a companion uh, phrase to this is when we notice a like-minded person who we could imagine really loving coming to our Unitarian Universalist church, and we think to ourselves, hmm, you know, they're a UU, but they just don't know it yet. And I, I completely get this. I do this too. And you know, for lots of us who come into Unitarian Universalism, it feels like this kind of homecoming. You're asking yourself, where have these people been all of my life? It feels wonderful. But this phrasing around having been a UU or being a UU and not knowing it, it's kind of based on this assumption that simply the act of finding and embracing Unitarian Universalism makes you a fully formed UU. But in reality, the work of spiritual deepening, the work of UU faith formation, it's a journey. It simply begins when you walk through our doors. There is so much that comes after. So what does this mean? What does it mean to be a Unitarian Universalist? Let's tune now into Reverend Gretchen's message on this very topic. When someone asks me how I became a Unitarian Universalist, I usually start by telling them the story of when I first attended the UU Church of Boulder in 1999. At that time, my partner and I, we arrived not just hungry, we were starving for a community that would affirm us together and share our values. See, I had come out to my parents that October and they were struggling. In one contentious back and forth with my mom, she said, okay, Gretchen, I really feel like you need a church. And I was like, she said, it can be any church. And if you go to church, I'll go to therapy. And I really wanted my mom to go to therapy. <laughs> so I made that deal. Carrie, my partner, and I, we opened up our AOL web browsers. <laughs> you know. And we, too, we actually did that belief net quiz that Eleanor mentioned. And it said that we were 100% Unitarian Universalists. <laughs> so we're like, OK. So we found, we looked up where that Unitarian Universalist church was, and it was right down the street. And we went the next Sunday, and then a number of Sundays after that. It was 
everything we needed. A whole community filled with people my parents' age, and yet they all saw us and affirmed us as we were. Now, to be honest, I also didn't mind that they didn't say Jesus all that often. I had been raised Catholic, and at that point, it felt to me like Jesus was like a cheat code that churches used. Okay, so I, I, who gets the reference? Cheat code. Come on. It's a gaming reference. Basically, who's a gamer that can say what quickly what it is? It gets you, it's like a thing you type in that gets you to win really fast, basically, right? Yeah, there's some other things you say that might you could say. But basically, it's a cheat. Jesus felt like a cheat code for the good life. Ah, all right. <laughs> As in whatever struggle or pain or loss you were experiencing, you could just say the word Jesus and somehow things would get better. But it never felt like that to me. My parents, they said Jesus a lot but it didn't feel like it was making anything better. I wanted real talk with real words, no cheat codes. And that was exactly what I found in the UU Church of Boulder. When we talk about becoming a Unitarian Universalist, we are in some ways talking about an experience of conversion. That is that gradual or maybe sudden shift in yourself in your identity, your sense of who you're loyal with, your, what, what words you use that indicate your sense of what a good life means, your framework for making meaning and your sense of what life's ultimate purpose is. And like all new, like all new beginnings, a conversion experience starts first with loss. Anthropologists describe, they talk about uh, conversion experiences first as an experience of rupture. Not rapture, just to be clear. Rupture, something that splits you apart. That's the first experience of conversion. Many people find our UU congregations after experiencing a rupture. And most everyone who finds us as adults is in one way or another recovering or coming to terms with that, ru that rupture. That is, they are in a state of what I call deconstruction. They're undoing. That is, they're often clear about what they don't believe, not Jesus, right? Um, they're clear about how they don't want to be religious. It's one reason that a lot of Unitarian Universalists wouldn't use the word conversion to describe their journey to Unitarian Universalism as that much as they would confirmation. Like I felt when I went to the UU Church in Boulder in those early days, it was like coming home. That we can be this and offer this to so many people is something that we should be proud of. It's, it's deeply needed in the world. We, people need a place to come to terms with the rupture, individually, collectively. It's just that too often we can get stuck in that state of deconstruction, that not this and start to forget that undoing and disbelieving only feed us to a point before we need something positive that actually feeds us where we are deeply hungry. 
About a decade after I made that deal with my mom, I was talking with this minister and theologian, somebody I really admired and respected. He was not UU, but he was doing this incredibly creative and impactful ministry I wanted to know all about. So we were talking about spiritual formation and spiritual depth and how that could happen in congregational life. And he asked me to tell him more about my own religious affiliation. And I said, well, I, I was a Unitarian Universalist. And his face dropped. And he said, well, your church is where a lot of people come when they've had pain in other places. I'm so glad you can be there for them. But once they work through that pain, they don't usually stay. They are too hungry for real spiritual food. <laughs> yeah, it stung then and it's, it still stings now. But not because there isn't like some degree of truth in what he said. Ultimately, a worldview and a self-identity based only in what we don't believe is insufficient to meet the greater questions of life or to fulfill that deeper hunger and drive for belonging and purpose and wonder and awe that all humans have within us. Which means that our congregations and our faith, if we intend for them to be places of lasting impact that keep feeding not just that initial crisis hunger, but that ongoing desire to be fed, they must be, rather than just way stations on most people's longer journey, they must invite us and equip us to move from deconstruction to reconstruction, from confirmation to real conversion. So going back to my own story, if you fast forward a few years, it was the summer of 2003. My partner and I had by then, we'd moved to Denver a couple years before, but we, we hadn't really figured out the new church we would go to in Denver. Uh, we had by then a community of chosen family around us. We were pretty active in organizing and service. And so we were just, we were just feeling pretty like fine. That is until September 2001 when everything changed. It wasn't the attack itself, the 9-11 attack that did it, or even the US invasion of Afghanistan, which we were firmly against. We knew where to go to, to find community and to protest around these things. We knew who to gather with. What sent us to the First Universalist Church of Denver was the growing conversation in the, the years after that, driven by the religious right and its conflation with the political right around morality and voting based on religious values. You remember that, some of you? Right, where they would talk about who was a, who, who was a values voter it was, it was this way that, that being religious started to equal meaning pro-war and anti-gay and even anti-Muslim. Because after our experience in Boulder, I knew this framing was leaving out a whole way of being religious, a whole tradition and community that, that included me. 
which meant I also knew that it was way past time for me to go show up with that community and really become a Unitarian Universalist, even though I really had no idea what that meant. We showed up like we had with, in Boulder. We showed up to First Universalist hungry and maybe a little angry, but we were by then a little more ready to be part of the community. So we signed up to be greeters and make coffee. I joined the worship team. Carrie signed up to have us do, I don't know, dinners and rotating homes. We got to know people, and they got to know us. People knew when we were going through the foster care process, and that first Sunday that we brought Gracie to church, at least a few of them understood what a huge deal it actually was. And a few months later, when she was dedicated at that church and then threw a giant fit through the whole ceremony, <laughs> they all sympathized. They're like, been there and didn't make us feel bad about it. We made a financial pledge to that church. We even went to congregational meetings. And over time, from services and a few classes, we started to learn more about Unitarian Universalism, the history, the traditions, the practices. Words like the flaming chalice and why are you you started to actually mean something. And we started to understand that people, people like Francis David, who fought for religious freedom in Transylvania, which turned out to be a real place, or Ralph Waldo Emerson, who, oh, he was a Unitarian minister, or at least he was till he quit in protest. Or Olympia Brown, a Unitarian uh, Universalist minister who was the first woman ordained by US denomination, the Universalist. We started to identify these people as our people. And this was all really solid, beginning faith formation work. All the pieces that, that Eleanor was building in the, the human and the Lego chalice. It's the sort of thing I would recommend to anyone who is beginning their journey as in a Unitarian Universalist congregation and beginning that foundational work of becoming a UU. But ultimately, even this is not, would not have been enough to sustain me or anyone as a Unitarian Universalist or in my life if I didn't find my way to seminary, and especially to a class in my third quarter on Unitarian Universalist polity, a class taught by the Reverend Nancy Bowen. So Nancy grew up in a Unitarian Universalist church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which made her a minority in every congregation she joined as an adult. I was gonna make, let's just guess, how many percentage-wise do you think uh, are in a given congregation were raised Unitarian Universalist? Five? It's more than five. 10, just a slight bit more than 10, it's 12. 12% in a given congregation and across the US, in it, when you walk in, were raised as Unitarian Universalist. Most people were not. So it, this also means that the fact that she stuck around was that she meant that she had a strong sense of what Unitarian Universalism was, not just as an act of undoing something else, but as its own religious tradition and constructive spiritual path. So early on in the quarter, we were exploring you know, this, this idea of a spiritual path and spiritual practices in New You congregations. And I shared kind of proudly that our congregation was having a Buddhist meditation practice once a week. And I thought it was really cool. And she was like, that's wonderful, dear. And then she paused and said, 
you know, it is always confusing to me why our people go only to resources outside our tradition instead of turning to our own tradition and our own spiritual path for faith formation. And I was like, absolutely good point. And I nodded really forcefully, but inside I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, like what? Like, what is our spiritual tradition and practices, our spiritual path? Isn't our path just being open to other paths? Despite being very active in my Unitarian Universalist congregation, I realized in that moment I really didn't know what it meant to be a Unitarian Universalist as its own religious identity and its own process of faith formation and spiritual deepening. Of course, I wasn't gonna let Nancy know any of this, so I just kept nodding and hoped that over the next few months, I'd turn that nod into something true. Given that I am here with you, you know that it, it worked, <laughs> which I attribute to two kinds of experiences during that time. The first, of course, was the content. Over those few weeks, those, I think it was it's a 12-week quarter, uh, we read and reflected on many, many, many pages of Unitarian Universalist and Unitarian and Universalist theology and practices, especially around what it means to be a covenantal tradition and how that shapes how we organize ourselves both within and beyond and among congregations and what this orientation should mean for how you live your life as a Unitarian Universalist. Theologian James Luther Adams, who I read for the first time that quarter, and who was himself a convert to Unitarianism, reminds us that the great Greek word for religious conversion is metanoia, which is important because this term is actually, it implies, it contains within it, that it's not just that you've had a change in how you believe, but it's more importantly, you have a change in how you live. So the question becomes, what difference does it make that you are a Unitarian Universalist in your life? How, how are you living differently? In what ways do your new loyalties and promises and commitments, your covenants, how do they make a difference in your actual life? And then how are those shifts in yourself affecting the community around you? In doing this deeper dive work on our religious tradition, I was shocked to learn how recently our congregations were not at all Jesus-free, <laughs> turns out, but rather for a long time we were quite Jesus-centered. Even up through the mid-20th century, many Universalists especially identified as liberal Christians rather than something distinctly other. I started to realize then that our faith collectively is like a lot of us individually who now practice this faith, where we, in that where we started is not where we ended up, which means our faith is still evolving as truth continues to be revealed. Even more importantly, I realized that in cutting ourselves off from that religious past, as Nancy had observed, from our own traditions and practices, then it cuts us off also from the wisdom and insight across the decades and centuries that brought us to where we are now. Which means that individually and collectively, conversion need not be a matter of shedding the past, the total rupture, but rather can be about intentionally curating 
and integrating tools for meaning making and practices that help us live more fully and honestly in partnership with the forces of love. So in our congregation today, the best way to encounter this kind of collective deep dive into our history, theology, and practices, because you shouldn't have to go to seminary to get that, I would say it's probably through Wellspring, our intensive 10-month-long small groups. We also offer classes, classes uh, now that we're, we seem to be gathering in person again, we'll return more fully to classes. This spring we offered a series on the covenantal practices, and in the past we've done things like transcendentalism, or the history of Unitarianism, or Universalism, religious humanism, or how to find your spiritual practice. I confess, though, when it comes to classes, I have a kind of ambivalence about how they connect with becoming a Unitarian Universalist, which comes mostly from the other main experience I had in that polity class. That is, that my clarity that none of that great content we received would have signified for me a real conversion experience if not for the relationship I formed and have since continued with Nancy Bowen. See, Nancy was at the time our district executive, which is the closest thing you use have to a bishop. We don't have bishops, which you learn in polity class, but it helps you understand she was really important and she was very busy. And yet through those weeks, she made it seem like investing in each of us would-be ministers and passing on her sense of Unitarian Universalism was the most important thing that she could do. Through her care and commitment, we understood how much our faith matters, our tradition, our practices, our people, but even more, we understood that we matter in the faith. Because for as much as she wanted us to learn the content, she just as much wanted to learn about us. She asked us about our families every week. She asked us about our questions and doubts, our sense of call. From the beginning, she told us that the relationship we were forming together in class was the most important part. It was the most important lesson because steadfast relationship and investing in one another's growth and well-being is the core practice of what it means to be a Unitarian Universalist. Relationship, especially with somebody who's invested in you and in our faith, is what can transform something from something that changes your mind into something that changes your life. It is what allows the tools and ideas of our faith to come into contact with actual human community. That promise of the bowl of soup and a song at the end of the day, and the shirking of dish duties and the showing up late expecting to be fed. We, of course, we need to know some things to become a Unitarian Universalist. It's just that even more than that, we need to be known. And we need to know others, all in the context of that Unitarian Universalism. This is the hope of our, all of our small groups. And it is where I struggle in offering those very straightforward classes. Because it makes it seem, it can, makes it seem like content is the point or changing people's minds is our goal. When really what we are up to here, what will sustain us and feed us is so much bigger 
and ongoing, that is the continuous experience of conversion made possible through committed relationships of trust and accountability, mentorship and mutual learning, so that as we change and as life changes around us, we can keep responding and loving more and more of the world. James Luther Adams says, we need conversion within ourselves, since only by some such revolution can we be seized by a prophetic power that will enable us to proclaim both the judgment and the love of God. Only by some such conversion can we be possessed by a love that will not let us go. May it be so, and amen. Hey, it's Elaine here. I love this beautiful sermon so much, and I thought the perfect way to wrap up the podcast would be to share with you Gretchen's closing words, the benediction that she offered, which just so perfectly matches with the greater message in the sermon. So here are the closing words from this last Sunday. Unitarian minister Robert Walsh used to tell the story of this Baptist seminary professor who was put on trial for universalism. He'd said, actually, that he, he, did, he believed in universalism. And so they, they deliberated, but they ultimately could not find enough evidence in his life that, that to convict him. He was able to keep his job. So he asks, if you were on trial right now and the charge was Unitarian Universalism, would there be enough evidence to convict you? <laughs> So this is my charge and blessing for us all to spend the week committing acts of Unitarian Universalism, <laughs> that we all can be charged and fully convicted in the com commitments and promises we make. Our worship time is over. Our service just begins. Go in peace and in love. Amen. Well, listener, it has been such a pleasure to spend this podcast time with you this week. And I have to say, I think we are already doing a great job fulfilling this charge to live in a way where we could be convicted of Unitarian Universalism, because listening to a UU podcast is a pretty UU thing to do. I am wishing you a week filled with ease, with opportunities to reorient yourself, to settle into some silence, to take some time and notice the beauty around you. I'm so grateful to be in community with you. I'm so glad you tuned in today. If you have a moment, please leave a positive review about this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people discover the show. And share it on social media. Share it with somebody in your life who you think might resonate with it. Share it with someone in your family who keeps asking you about Unitarian Universalism or is trying to figure out what this whole movement is about. Spread the word. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so glad that you tuned in.